Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington. And in this episode, we talked to John Gill from Motion Invest, Originality AI, Website Income, probably a couple other places. He's started several businesses out there. So in this episode, we get into some of the details with his journey. So how he got started working online, which is a little bit different than a lot of us and much earlier than I started myself, which was in 2013. So we hear John's journey and then we talk about AI quite a bit and we talk about originality AI, which is a tool that helps you uh, check plagiarism, number one, but also detect AI. It's based on one of the open AI um, you know, tools out there. We get into some of the details. You can sign up for that service. I'm an affiliate. It, it is a paid service. It's quite economical. And the thing is, whether you're actually using the AI tools or you're hiring writers, you are able to check their writing to see if there's a likelihood, right? And we get in the, into the percentages and everything. If that content is likely to have been written by an AI tool or not. So it's not 100%. Again, we get into the percentages and all of that stuff. And, you know, one side note, one cool thing, uh, John and I were able to meet in person in San Diego at the Ezoic event. I'm wearing an Ezoic hat right now. So that was really cool to meet him in person, uh, shared a couple of beers, a couple of drinks out there. And yeah, he's a great dude. So I was glad to meet him in person. I've known him for a few years and we talk about it in the interview. So very cool. He's a good guy and hope you enjoy this interview. Now, before I send it over, quick note, I do have a mini course, a free mini course via email that is coming out uh, January 16th, 2023 uh, through the week. So it'll be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I send out three emails. It's free and it's geared towards getting you motivated to start or grow a website. So if you are interested in starting a website or you have one and you want to grow it and you need some motivation, some direction, sign up for the free mini course. I'll put a link in the description show notes so you can get to it. It's free. You sign up for the email list and then you'll get those emails starting on Monday, January 16th through the week. So I'll leave it at that, but it kind of goes into some of my backstory and helps you find direction in a similar way that I did, which that was back in 2013. So very helpful overall. Without further ado, I'm going to send it to the interview with John Gillum, and I'll see you on the other side. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and today we're going to talk to John Gillum from Website Income and the founder of a few tools and agencies. We're going to talk about starting and selling agencies, and that's something that John actually did with Content Refined and Rocket Content. And we'll get into AI, which is a hot topic with um, ChatGPT coming out recently. It's all the chatter, so we'll talk about that and other tools, plus AI detection for consumers like us, and whether Google can detect AI, plus plagiarism and staying on top of all that kind of stuff. So John, how's it going today? Yeah, it's going great. Thanks for thanks for having me. Always uh, always good to chat with you, Doug. Yeah, and it was cool. We actually just met for the first time a few months ago in San Diego at the Ezoic event. 
But you're one of the very first people that I reached out to and met online back in 2013. I think I I pitched you. I, I said, hey, do you want to guest post on my site? So I wasn't trying to guest post on your site, but you were too busy. I think you were working full time and doing the side stuff. So you were like, I don't have time, but if you want to write something for me, that'd be great. And I connected with you because you had the project management background. And I'm, I thought, well, if he's a project yeah. manager and he's doing this, then maybe I can too. So do you happen to remember just like the some of those early networking days? Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember the, the early days of having the the day job and the uh, trying to do the online thing back in the yeah the 2010 to 20 until I, I left, I guess, in 2016, I think was kind of my timing, okay. um, was when I left the day job. And so, yeah, certainly those early days of like, yeah, I remember certainly connecting with you. I mean, it feels like I mean, almost a decade ago in this world, which is crazy, the number of things that have happened in this world since and continues to happen. So, yeah, I remember those days. They were fun. They were fun. A little bit crazy in terms of the hours worked, but uh, good times. Yes, yeah, same here. It was waking up early and staying up late and some work on the weekends. And, you know, you're still doing your day job sometimes on the weekends, yeah. too. So well, when did yeah. you get started working online? So I think my sort of like discovery into the world was around 2008, um, where I got hired as an internet engineering company, um, summer intern, and they're like brand new sort of like tech startup, but like hardware tech startup. And they're like, hey, we need a website. I'm like, I'm a mechanical engineer. Like, do you need me to size a pump? Um, they're like, no, no, we, we need a website. Go figure it out. And so that's where I, I, under, I discovered uh, Odesk, which has now turned into Upwork. Um, but that sort of blew my mind in terms of the ability to um, post a job, hire somebody. And I'm like, holy crap, there must be a, there must be an arbitrage opportunity here in terms of labor arbitrage, where it's like, look at what we, look at what we just did. And then like, we were able to use that same workforce on, on Odesk for sort of engineering related tasks. And then that sort of led me down the path of like, where can we use this global talent base to do, to do things. And that led to online businesses. And that was like 2008 timing. Wow. So really early, because I know most of the people, like you said, I mean, it's almost a decade since I got started. And there were a couple people that had, you know, a few years ahead of me. But there's not that many people that, you know, stuck around from 2007, 2008. So it's interesting that you saw it as a, a kind of a labor force arbitrage opportunity versus like immediately online business. So do you remember some of the early people that you followed in the online business world? Uh, so I think it was, I mean, probably the, the classic list, but like, like Pat Flynn, um, you know, like for our work, we could just sort of come out around that, around that time. Um, trying to think of some of the other, um, and then Spencer, Spencer is probably the, the one that sort of had the, the most specific sort of hat kind of, but sort of like went a bunch of different directions, but since Spencer sort of the content site world was, was pretty. And then, I mean, there was a, there was a, I mean, it's improved significantly, but then there was a, a world of um, yellow highlighted sales pages back in that timing that was, uh, yeah, and, and people associated with that world that uh, was was not not as productive in terms of providing a free information. I remember running across those sales pages uh, when I got started. They were still around for a little while, and yeah. I probably had one or two of those. Um, but yeah, they've cleaned, they've cleaned up a lot. A lot. So yeah. once you found the online space, um, what, what were your first sites like? Did you dive in? I know the 
tools were much different then and WordPress wasn't nearly as mature. Yeah. The, the, I think that some of the first stuff was, um, seeing if I could organize like using labor to organize free existing resources. So like some of the, like some really like, like free, like, like common, um, creative common books, creative common, like audio content, and then like using labor to try and take this like massive library of stuff and turn it into an organized format for people to be able to access. Um, so that was one. And then sort of the first like taste of success was around, um, uh, creating a spreadsheet, creating a free resource, creating a, a spreadsheet that was able to be downloaded. Um, I think this is even before Google Google Sheets, um, but creating a, like a, a Excel sheet that was able to be downloaded, and then that got some traction in terms of the usefulness of that, and sort of helped really sort of center my my thoughts around like oh add add value, and that will that will result in in good outcomes for everyone involved. Um, so that, that was probably the first, and that was like maybe 20, 2009, 2010 timing. Okay. And so, so walk us through the next couple of years. Like you said, 2009 is where you left off there. You didn't quit your job until 2016 or so. And when, when I found you, you were, uh, building some niche sites and kind of the traditional Amazon affiliate model, which was, um, I think a little more popular then, People still do Amazon affiliate, but I think display ads are becoming a little more popular now and just other other affiliate programs as well. So, yeah, how did it go the next couple of years? Yeah, um, hit, hit and miss at times. Um, I mean, so I had a enjoyable job. I mean, it's crazy and too many hours and wanted to leave it to get back with a, with a family to my hometown where we could ski and ski and bike as much as possible. Um, and so that was sort of the real the real drive behind the online business. Um and so the focus was, you know, having a project managed background, coming at it from this discovery of multiple arbitrage or, or labor arbitrage. It was how can we build? How can there be a repeatable system um, to to scale um, this sort of online activities that we, that that was producing value for for everyone? Um, so that looked like the creation of a bunch of a bunch of sites, um, and then trying to systematize everything that we did to then increase add extra capacity. So it was build up my own portfolio. And that was really kind of the core predominantly content sites, Amazon affiliate, a little bit of display ads, and then building in extra capacity into each of those systems that I created for my own team. And then selling those, selling that extra capacity to, to my audience, which was being built on, on website income. And that was sort of the, the path from 2010 to 2016 was just build up my own portfolio, talk about what I was doing, not sell any sort of information, but then sell a bunch of um, extra capacity in the services that I was using for my own for my own work. Got it. And if I remember right, like you were you were tracking your your income, you wouldn't necessarily reveal where all the income was coming from or specific sites. But you were, if I remember right, aiming for like ten or fifteen k per month or something from side income. Yeah, so fifteen. I two sort of like the trigger to leave the day job was I had two metrics and sort of had my wife tracking this to get her on board as well because like yeah. we're gonna leave you know great job, move cities. She's just gonna quit her job and it was yeah fifteen k fifteen k month um, income and a certain certain level of of runway was the was the target. Okay. And then we we sort of hit the income, didn't quite hit the runway yet, and so sold and then exceeded the income. So then sold some sites to sort of hit that, hit that combined target of both runway plus, plus income. Okay, cool. And you're 
creating a really nice transition to the agencies. And you mentioned, you know, you build your team and you have capacity. And I've heard that several times. But before we move on, I'm interested in a couple areas. One, you know, what was your portfolio like? Like how many sites did you have? Did it get pretty crazy? Like you said, you were working a full-time job. You're a family man. Like there's a lot of demands going on. Yeah, no, it got, it got real. It got dumb. Um, like this was like back in the like exact match domain, 20, 20 pieces of content was an acceptable level of, of like amount of content for Google to rank a site. Like it got, it got dumb. It, like, I think that we had like 60 sites that were, were all built to, to make money. I mean, terrible strategy now, um, terrible strategy then. Um, <laughs> you know, I think about if, if we had focused on a few and then had a decade time horizon, what would have been produce would have been significantly more sustainable. And so there's a couple of sites out of those 60, how many are still around three um, that are, that are continuing to be in the portfolio and producing value. Um, But yeah, so it got, it got dumb. (laughs) And it's interesting you bring that up because I mean, we were all kind of in an echo chamber. We were reading and consuming the same information and trying to do kind of the same things. And I'm thinking of uh, Matt Jevanisi from moneylab.co. Do you know Matt, by the way? No. No, so I, has, I know the name, but I haven't, haven't bumped into him much. I'll connect you guys. So he has Swim University, which I know yeah. like you would have an interest in that. And yeah. the one big thing is he, he worked on the same site from 2005 until now. And now it's like yeah. a million-dollar business. And it doesn't make sense. Yeah. The first even five or eight years, it didn't make any sense. It's like, dude, you could have done so many other things, but it's only, you know, 10 years plus, you could see the the brilliance of just working on the same thing for 16 yeah. years. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy. I mean, potentially, and I mean, this is always the risk, but like potentially some survivor bias in there when, and so yes, definitely no, no Matt and, and some in the, and his, his, yeah. his site, um, and an incredible story, but you know, I guess it's, it's always a, is there a survivor bias? And, and, you know, my, I had a big fear and still do potentially unfounded, but in terms of like having a bit of an income stool and like, do I want it all to be dependent on a single, a single site? You know, if, if you build it right, like the most successful people I know in the space, um, are single site focused. Um, but is there survivor bias in there? Because you haven't heard of the people that had their one thing squashed, unfairly fairly by google and and then they're they're done the game game's over for them because they had all all eggs in one basket or you know the saying goes put all your eggs in one basket and watch it closely yep and i think you're right i mean it is 100 percent survivorship bias because basically uh, most other people didn't do that they don't have a million dollar site and you know who knows why they could have quit a lot of people did quit but a lot of a lot of things just didn't work out. Like the space wasn't ready. And, you know, there's a lot of like right place at right time also, which, I mean, I think I got lucky a few times, just right place at the right time. So, yeah. Okay, cool. So you had a lot of sites, things trimmed down, you earned enough money, you had the runway. So let's talk about some of the agencies that that you started. And I, I don't know, you may have had some other services uh, along the way too, but how did you start selling and marketing the extra capacity on your team? Yeah, I, I made a decision pretty early on that I was, um, that, that because of my time constraints and that it just wasn't the right fit for me to be sort of on, on the educator side of things. And so I didn't want to get in the path of sort of selling information. I mean, I think it's 
incredibly useful, but it just wasn't, wasn't the right fit for, for where I was coming from and what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I was building an audience at, at website income and, you know, as I talked about what I was doing there, the questions started to come like, Hey, can you do that for me? And so one of the earliest things, um, you know, going back again to the, to the era, um, but one of the earliest things was around PBN. So private blog networks where you build up a bunch of sites and then use those sites to link to, to your money site. And that would, would rank. I mean, it still kind of works and does not really, um, a cost effective way of doing things now or, or the right strategy. If you have a decade, a decade timeline. Um, but that, that was one of the, the first things. And so sort of talking, talking, sharing as much information as possible about how I would do things for myself. And then as people would request it, building an extra capacity and sort of like going back to that, like 2008 timing on like what got me interested in this space was that project management, systematizing things and looking at the, the labor arbitrage opportunities. So it's like, here's how you can do it yourself. And then building in the, the systems to say, or you can hire the team, my team to do it. And here's how we're going to go and do it. Okay. And did you have any specific challenges on the marketing side? So you had an engineering background. Usually we're not great uh, marketers. <laughs> As engineers, we yeah. don't have a strong background in that. Uh, some of, some people do have like a much stronger like entrepreneurial drive, which I think lends itself to some marketing. But any challenges uh, navigating the marketing and sales portion? Or did your blog content just kind of sell it on its own? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, I look at some of the competitors, like at the time with when we were doing like we, and I think this is again, my my ADD, it's sort of like spray shiny object problem. But uh, I look at some of the, the people like Fat Joe was sort of started around the same time, awesome, big, the Hoth was started around the same time, right? Like big, sort of yeah. like, it, it turned into SEO agency, link building was the start, but now one did a bunch of other stuff. Um, we sort of went a bit of a similar route, but then with multiple brands, which I'm not sure if that was the right, probably the wrong strategy. But in, in, so in terms of marketing, you know, I think it was, it felt like it was a great, it was a very congruent fit with myself and my audience and, and the service to do the sort of like reveal everything. Here's how we do it. And then buy here. And that worked really well. Um, could, but did we have challenges scaling beyond that? Yes. And the, and so the solution to that was, like we came a bit too much of a one trick pony in terms of our marketing channel. And the result was, Oh, we'll sort of spin up other related businesses versus having, if I had had the skill sets that I have now around marketing and sales, I think we would have gone a different direction back in the, the earliest days of the first services because, because we did run into constraints around marketing and sales. Okay. Gotcha. And I guess at this point, I mean, can you like, have you thought about re-engineer, like just merging the businesses or whatever, or what was the cost of that? You know? Yeah. I th thought about it. Um, some of them have been neglected for too long that I don't know if it would, it would make sense. And, and I still, I still, I'm still having the most fun when I'm building something new. And so, um, I, you know, the, the model has evolved to like for the longest time, it was like, you know, stop being an idiot, stay focused on one thing. But now I'm just kind of like, oh, it's more fun. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to go and just like, and the system works now well where it's like build it, like identify the opportunity, build the, the thing, build the system, kick it out the door, put enough energy into it for the right amount of time and then put in a great, a great CEO and manager who I know you've had a couple on the, on the call 
on the, on the chat, sort of yep. that, that structure and then incentivize them on, on equity. And that, that sort of structure around that managing of that key person has been sort of the, the template that has, has continued to work. And so um, joining them together would be interesting, but the, the, it would mess up my sort of structure that has seemed to have continued to be successful. I like how you figured out what you enjoy doing, which is like building new stuff and creating it and then, you know, growing it up to a point. But then once it's running on its own, like you want to go do something else. Cause I think, yeah, some people like we're supposed to do a certain thing and like, we're, we're not doing it for us. We're doing it cause we're supposed to. So I like yeah. you, you figured it out and you just like leaned into it. Now I'm sure it sounded like, you had the runway that you needed and like you can make decisions not based solely on financial aspects, right? Yeah, cer- certainly, certainly there was times. Yes. If, if, if there was, if that was sort of like food on table decisions, then that would be potentially different, a different set of a different set of constraints for those decisions. Okay. So any, um, you know, big mistakes or issues with any of the agencies, just curious if nothing comes to mind, we can move on. But I know sometimes, uh, I mean, I've done just some silly stuff where, you know, you send out an email with like the wrong links to like your biggest promo of the year or anything. So any, any kind of mistakes from agency world? So the one that's uh, recurring still happens. I mean, some of the AI content is helping this, but you know, we ran our very large um, content marketing. Well, I guess it depends on depends on the relative scale, but r- ran a large content marketing agency where we're putting out you know millions of words a month, and I was at times writing the email, and my grammar, you know, English isn't my isn't my strength. If I'm if I'm living in a spreadsheet, I'm much happier than I'm living in a in a in a document writing words. So, um, yeah, multiple times would get appropriate and snarky and and you know appreciated (laughs) emails back being like yeah let me get this straight you're talking about writing content and hiring this service (laughs) to write content and i just looked at 10 typos and three spelling mistakes so grammarly's helped and ai content's helped but i'd say that was probably still the i've done that a lot Um, it's just the number of poor number of poorly worded emails that i've sent out has been has been more than it should be yeah I can relate to that. I, I actually remember several emails and I, I got one last week, but luckily I was quoting someone and they were like, you, the grammar is bad in the quote. And I was like, all right, I can handle that. It didn't hurt me yeah. as bad, but yeah, some of the others, I'm like, I'm doing my best mostly. So man, this is bringing flashbacks to university here, <laughs> the professor. Yeah. So, so you, you sold uh, content refined and rocket content, right? So can you talk about like the decision to do it and some of the negotiation and the pieces that you have to deal with when selling a business like that? Yeah. Um, so I didn't, didn't build any of those with the intent of selling because I think they all worked nicely together. Like I've got uh, motion invest, which is a website brokerage where we can buy and sell websites had lightning rank, which is sort of definitely sleepier side of things now, but built around sort of the, the link building side of things. And then the other piece is, is we brand build it around building sites. Um, and then we have, um, the content marketing services with content refined. And then we launched rock content, which was sort of a productized version of using AI to generate content. Um, and so, uh, the right opportunity came up to look at to look at selling content refined. Um, 
and you know when i i talked to the for, for me for them it was a great fit because it was sort of a, a nice tuck in at a different price point than their current business and they would be able to like have some some clients step up from from content refine have some clients step down and this was a way to sort of cover off the entire value chain for them of and they were they were a funded business looking to focus exclusively on this one this one sort of content generation world and selling to different we were mostly selling to different um different customer profiles um so it made sense for them um for me it was you know I, i'm not sure if it was the right decision again um you know for me it was a, it was a de-risking um a lot of my businesses are focused around have some of this although there's a bunch of different businesses there's always that feeling of like wake up tomorrow and google says you you you're done you're no longer allowed to be on the internet get out of here mm-hmm. um and this was a bit of a de-risking of you know a lot of our clients were amazon associates um or display ad um across all the businesses so even though that we had different businesses it was still sort of the same business model that was being used across all of those so if you know ai came out and said if ai came out with with a level of um quality that could kill sort of the content sites which the risk is low but not zero um what what would happen and so this was sort of a, a way to to de-risk um de-risk that that sort of what i felt like was a sort of single point of failure across all the all the related businesses got it so they they approached you it sounds like and they probably reached out to a few companies or you know just seeing what was out there were you hesitant at first or were you you know, you were pretty open to it because of, like you said, the risk factors that you were trying to mitigate. Yeah, I was, I was open to it. I mean, it, uh, the process was painful. Um, I've, you know, I, I had sold some other businesses. I'd, I had an FBA business at the time, sold it, have sold some content sites, um, have, have purchased businesses. Um, and, and this was the first time dealing with what was more sort of on the institutional side, um, needing to do sort of like quality of earnings and, um, going through that whole whole process, um, and it was it was more painful than than I had wanted it to be. Um, you know, we we put our data room together pretty quick, pretty efficiently, but just it, it took it took longer and was more painful than than I I wish it was. Um, definitely hesitant at a few times. The deal was very close to not happening, um, both from us pulling out and them pulling out. Um, I think it's been a win for everyone right now, uh, which is good. Um, you know, there's a nice earnout structure in there where we get to share in some of the ongoing upside and and some equity rollover into this larger this larger company. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's been a good outcome. But yeah, definitely a few times. I think it took almost like eight months from sort of first contact. Yeah, maybe, wow. maybe yeah, eight months from first contact to deal done. Gotcha. And can you give us any idea of the scope of the deal? And you could describe that however you want because I know there's NDAs and stuff. Yeah, like it was, it was in the 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 seven figure seven figure range in terms of turn total deal size, and then we had about forty staff that needed to to get moved. Um, it was a another Canadian company that helped out as well with um, with moving over. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the 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 deal size range. And that was um, crowd content that bought bought the company, yeah. right? Okay, cool. Correct. And yeah, anything that you would do different in structuring like the team or anything, knowing that, you know, you would eventually sell it. 
So almost all my businesses end up with the same structure of a, there being a key manager that ends up with a, a piece of equity on the business. Um, and that equity is vesting over time. Um, they get an opportunity to buy in, buy in more. Um, you know, that's, that's worked out great with some, some businesses. It worked out great with this business. Maddie was phenomenal. And then she was off on that leave and nurses stepped in and he was, he's currently still running it. He moved over. He's been phenomenal. Um, there were, I'd say that there were some, in, and it's worked out well, like the, the level of trust was high, but you know, it's always good to have any, any commitments really well documented. Um, it worked out well because the trust was high, but there were some things that could have gone south with the internal team that would have, I would have been felt really bad about. Um, but the trust level was extremely high and it all got worked out. But like some of the like commitments around like, okay, we're going to get you tied into to equity here's how, here's the timing on doing that. And we sort of emailed it and documented, it, but it wasn't, it was still room for interpretation. We all agreed that on the sort of the outcome, but the, it, it, that was, that was a problem. And then also, um, you know, when you're, when I worked at a big company, I worked at Exxon mobile. Um, it was always challenging when another company of a different sort of size and level of sophistication of systems tried to bolt up to it. And say like, great, we're going to work with you. Send over your, you know, all of this. Here's the checklist of documents that we need from you, um, and here's our information. And they're like, we're just two dudes that are going to go remove that pipe for you. Like, I don't know what, like, what do you? Uh, we don't have that. And so it was always hard when you had like, and so we were, we were that, they were that bigger shop, and we were that company needing to try and bolt up. And the our level of sophistication of our backend systems was not the same as as theirs, and especially on the financial side. And so I'd say that was that was a learning that even if you're small, but you want to sell someone bigger, your um, some of your systems need to be up to that level of standard. Otherwise, it, it can be a, a inefficient process. Got it. You mentioned uh, I think you said quality of earnings or something like that. Yeah. Can you describe that? I don't know what that is. Yeah. So it's it's basically an audit. So audit. Uh, accountants are hired to audit. So you say like, Hey, here's my trailing 12 months profit. Here's my revenue, here's my profit. And then the quality of earnings is they hire an auditing firm like a Ernst and young or one of, one of those kind of big, big companies to come in with some accountants and say, great, we're going to follow transactions all the way through. So we're going to randomly pick some transactions and you're going to provide all details associated with that transaction. So you're going to show, emails associated with that transaction. You're going to show the, 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 the invoices, you're going to show the money going into your, you know, Stripe or whatever it is, the money coming into the bank account. Um, and, and so they will verify at a high level, the, the earnings, but then they'll also pick some apart. And so it's a way to ensure that the numbers are accurate and, and ensure that, um, that that there's no sort of funny business occurring with overstating overstating earnings or understating expenses. Okay. And at first when you said that I was like, "Oh no, they're like an accountant would look at my bookkeeping, which I do myself, and think, what the hell are you doing, man? This is bananas." But what you described, like I could track the the transaction from origin, yeah, the origin all the way to like my bank account and, and you know, all that stuff. So that's not too bad. Is there anything you could do ahead of time to make that easier? Or, I mean, that's something where you have to follow the trail through the uh, software, right? Yeah. So it depends. So, so if you're working with an accountant, you'll typically get um, notice to read or financial statements. And so if you're, I would say 
and I haven't done this, but if I was setting up a business to sell it, I would look to say, we want audited financial statements. So, you, so if, if my bill for the year from the accountant is $5,000, that'll probably turn my bill into $15,000 to go from notice to reader financial statements to audited financial statements. But it's essentially getting the internal uh, accountant to do almost the same process that they would still do a quality of earnings. But if you, if you, if somebody comes along and says, you know, accountant says, knock, 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 quality of earnings sign, here's my questions. And you say, here's my audited financial statements, not notice to reader financial statements. Then they're like, oh, okay. And, and it comes from a, you know, respectable accounting firm. Then, you know, when I talk about sort of like that's that financial system flanging up, the, you know, the things will align and they'll know what they'll, they'll, the level of standards will be higher. And so hindsight, I don't, I wouldn't have, like, I think it would have been the wrong decision with given that information at the time. But if hindsight, perfect hindsight 2020, if I was ever to sell a business again in that same price range, then I would look to get my accountants to do audited financial statements so that when it comes time to do that sort of financial due diligence, it's a, it's a smooth process. And, you know, the higher the confidence, you know, the, the less information asymmetry or less information differences between the two sides, um, the, the more confidence that, you know, potentially the lower the risk and the higher the price willing to be paid. And I, I'm just ballparking and you could let me know what you think, but I would guess you probably wouldn't have to worry about it unless you're selling maybe like 750K or higher, something like that. I mean, you're getting close to seven figures at that point. Is there some threshold where like you should start paying attention to that that sort of thing? Uh, um so, so complexity is a big piece of it. So like at Motion Invest, we're selling websites that will hit a million dollars plus. Um, and that when it's a super simple business, like here's all of our revenue from this one sort of ad network and here's our line of expenses, then it's super easy to do to get near perfect confidence that, yep, this is where it's coming from. Um, when you have staff and in clients and the agency. So I think there's, it's a sliding scale in terms of complexity. So if you're incredibly simple and you're $10 million business, maybe that's fine. Um, I, so I guess I'd say like in, in, I would say seven figures was a, was a reason if for like a more complex business, seven figures would probably be the point where that would start to be worth it. Super simple business, maybe in that eight figure sort of touch point would be the, the time to look. Are you, um, is there anything else that we should talk about with, uh, selling or were you ready to, can we shift to AI stuff? We always thought that AI content was interesting and a big piece that was going to be happening moving forward. And so very early on when AI tools came out, we launched rocket content, which was a sister business to content refined. And it was built on AI, like transparently communicating. We are an AI generated content shop that will ethically review the content to make sure it's factual and then publish it. Um, so that, that was an interesting piece for, for them. Um, and also sort of revealed some of the challenges that existed in the world of, of hiring a ton of writers and, and AI. Okay. And yeah, we'll just move right into uh, rocket content just a little bit. So like you said, it's uh, transparently using an AI writer. Which tool did you guys use? So we were the heaviest user of Jasper for uh, an extended period of time. Um, right now, I, I don't know what their you know 
still loosely connected, but um, Jasper was sort of the heaviest. The the tool that we use heavily um, used a ton of the other other tools uh, like Great Sonic, etc. Okay, and why did you guys pick uh, Jasper specifically, especially after testing at probably sizable volumes? What made Jasper better than some of the others? Yeah, we we found it to be. I mean, it's a moving target because they're all changing so incredibly fast. Um, but we found it to be the most efficient to have a team working within. Um, Right Sonic has sort of come up and that same sort of like long form content specific having a team. Um, we found Jasper to be pretty, pretty effective and the quality of the output, the writers found it to be the, the need. Like when we looked at the total cost to produce a piece of content from input to edit, to publish um, Jasper had a, even though it was maybe a little bit more expensive, um, ended up being the the more efficient just from like some a few a few sort of minor efficiency pieces that they have team management and then the the quality that that was produced um so yeah that that was that was sort of the the reasons the team the team went with that choice okay gotcha and uh, it's interesting and I'm it's cool that you guys kind of leaned into it cuz I know some of the other content agencies they're I think they they tested it and they looked and they the cost benefit didn't work out or whatever, but they're extremely resistant. You know, they're viewing AI as competition, which I mean, I guess it is, right? Because if someone's choosing yeah. to pay for the tool, they're not going to pay for the service, and who knows how the quality is going to hold up. But what? Why did you decide to lean into it versus you know be an opponent of AI? Yeah, so I think we're hedging hedging bets doing we're doing both um <laughs> I, you know I, you know with originality I'm, I'm i'm sort of doing doing a bit of both um and so kind of hedging but but also um uh, you know i think the the like who's either just get disrupted or disrupt yourself um and so i think there's a world for both um there's a world for low cost low cost AI generated content to test out a new cluster um, on a site to then come back around and, and improve if it, if it starts to hit or, or kill. I think that's a great use case for AI content um, blowing up as, you know, trying to drop a content bomb on a site to see if you can revive a site that's been neglected. Great use case. Um, and then there's, you know, top tier high quality of thought leadership content definitely continues to be a place for that on, on sort of top money sites. So I think there's, there's a use, there's a valid use case for each. And for, for us, we saw it and that's why we launched a sort of a separate, a separate brand um, around rock content versus content refined was that we saw there being a good opportunity to um, it's not as easy as just sort of like press a button and content is published. Like you, you know, I think it's, you shouldn't be publishing content that has factual errors in it. And so that requires the fact checking that sort of like the ethical use of AI to, to create content. And that still requires labor and that, um, and we could sort of build a system to, to do that uh, at scale efficiently. So let's shift over to originality.ai. So what is that? And describe why you wanted to create the tool. I think it'll be pretty obvious once you get into it though. Yeah. Yeah. So it started out um, predominantly as a plagiarism checker. So 
there's sort of industry standard plagiarism checkers in the form of CopyScape. Um, it's been around since 2002, you know, longer, longer than, than you or I have been on the <laughs> internet. Um, and, uh, and, and they're in this world at least. And it, it hasn't improved much since then. It, you know, that there's like credit based systems, which is super annoying because you had to always add credit. There's just a ton of problems with that tool. Um, and it was not built for like the, this, the free plagiarism checker search volume is like 500,000 uh, a month. Um, any other keywords related to sort of like premium is like a thousand a month. So it's like the world is built around the free, like academic use case of plagiarism checking in academia and students needing to, to check their work for, for plagiarism. And so most tools have been built around that use case and there's none of the tools had the use case that serious web publishers need in terms of the addition of team members, auto billing, scan history. So, you know, if you ask an editor, did it, everything get run and you have the step in your process, run everything through CopyScape. Great. But how do you know that happened? Um, you know, probably trust them probably happened, but if you have a way to trust, but verify that's an improved an improved level of control in your system. Um, how, if you're using a CopyScape tool, you're sharing your password with people. And if they change teams, are you resetting your password? And so that team management piece was missing. So that, that was what started it. Also with Motion Invest, when we're buying and selling sites, we want to check the plagiarism um, for all pieces of content. Um, we're building within originality, the ability to just put in the, the URL and it will um, crawl the entire site and then return a score for each each piece of content. So that was sort of what, what started it. Um, and then we added on the component of AI detection. So, you know, I think I, like I talked about, like there's a, there's a use case for AI content, but there is a risk with AI content from Google. And if you are a publisher, as of right now, you don't have a lot of good tools at your in your tool belt to understand if writers that you have hired are are say they are not using AI, but actually are using AI content. Um, and so we're trying to sort of put a tool in the tool belt of serious web publishers that want to make a risk adjusted decision on um, whether or not to publish AI generated content. Okay. And let's jump back to the plagiarism area too. So from uh Copyscape, like where did the where's the database of like all the information? Where does that come from, and then where does it come from with originality? Yeah, so so uh, the database for Copyscape and a bunch of other tools is a archive version of the web, and so that's you'll get returns in Copyscape that will have either a four hundred four error or it's like this is just sort of a spam site that doesn't really exist in the world. Like it doesn't matter. with originality, we're, we're live checking the uh, Google um, results for that for that piece for those pieces of content, um, and so it produces a a more accurate and relevant for again relevant for the purposes of ranking in Google. That's what we care about is what's in Google um, for the purposes of hey, I didn't cheat on my exam. Did that piece of content ever exist? And so that's sort of the two different use cases. And so we, the Copyscape uses an, an archive version of, of all sort of text that's ever been published. And then we use the live, the live index on Google. 
Okay. So how long does it take? Let's say you want to check one piece of content that's say 2000 words, or if you have an example, how long does it take uh, originality to run that plagiarism check? Yeah. So a few things. So four, four to six seconds for, for plagiarism. Okay. So pretty, pretty quick. So you're not going to be sitting around all, all day, have to come back to it. Okay, great. Um, okay. So onto the AI detection, how, how does that work? Like, do, do you know the, the inner workings? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of one of these, like, it's, it's a super common question. Um, and, and I don't have a great answer for it. <laughs> because, so, so it's, I'd say, so it's similar. So I'll tell you how it's been trained and then sort of compare it to some, some, um, analogies in the world right now uh, that, that people are familiar with. But, um, so we trained it on every popular natural language processing model. So all of these tools that are out there, like the Jaspers, the Right Sonics, the Copy.AIs, they all plug into the same brain. That brain is OpenAI's GPT-3 natural language processing model. Um, so that's that's what they all plug into. And so in the end, you know, they make a different front end, add some tweaks to it. But in the end, they're going and they're calling the API to to OpenAI's GPT-3 and returning the the output. Um, so we trained um, our own AI on the output from all of the popular. There's there's GPT-2, GPT-Neo, GPT-J, GPT-3. Now GPT-3.5, Chat GPT, which kind of ties into those. So all of these sort of sources for content, um, we have pulled, you know thousands, tens of thousands of results across uh, hundreds of thousands across all of the models. And then we had our own AI chew through those to look for similarities and look and then be able to detect um, AI generated content using that. Um, Result was our lowest level of accuracy is 94% on on GPT-3 and it goes higher for for others. Um, Other other AI detectors um, will work on like a linear probabilistic model. So what's the what's the likelihood that the next word is machine generated and not necessarily what is the likelihood that this entire article was AI generated? And so how does it exactly, what is it exactly identifying and why did this ex- article exactly get detected as AI? Bit of a black box, very similar to... Um, trading algorithms uh, that would be at like a big hedge fund that would or like a quant hedge fund that would say you know train an ai to look at a bunch of miscellaneous things and it's going to tell a trade and as long as that trade is within some risk parameters that trade is getting executed and no one's really able to say why that trade made sense or didn't make sense um you know hopefully in in their the sort of so that's yeah, long, long answer to it, but it's uh, it's kind of fascinating right now in terms of, you know, and and, we're, and it does, it's 94%, it's not perfect. And so we do get false positives. We do not detect some things, but it's better than not having a tool. And then what people have people that are like, maybe didn't use AI getting a false positive and they're saying, why is it, why is it showing up as AI? It's like, it's the, yeah, the tool that we are confident in said it was. Got it. And I, I tested a couple, and I'll do a video and some comparison, but, you know, there's a couple of tools that do AI detection, and I played around, and, and they were largely disappointing, number one. So, one example, I think I, 
I got output directly from an AI tool and put it in. And I think it, you know, it detected it, I think. And then I took an email that I wrote to someone. Like I personally wrote it. So there's like no question. Normal email, few hundred yep. words, nothing crazy. It uh, also was detected for AI. <laughs> and I'm like, obviously, this is just a normal email. Nothing weird in there. I'm not trying to, you know, it's not a, it's not a specific kind of email personal email to, you know, friend. So, and I did that a few times and then I started snagging uh, emails that people wrote me asking questions or something like that. It also detected those. So I was like, okay, this tool is pretty much garbage. I don't remember which one it was, but um, yeah, largely disappointing. Do you have any insight on how some of the other tools out there are trained? Yeah, so that's the, a lot of them are on the linear probabilistic model. And so a lot of them are also trained on GPT-2 only. And so the our compute, like, and, you know, I kind of know this with some level of certainty since our compute costs are, there's no way that we could support our compute costs on, I mean, unless you're open AI right now and they're burning, burning compute costs with chat GPT. Um, but there's no way that we could be an ad supported free tool with our compute costs with our model and so i think but what the and and some of the other tools have talked about how they work where there are more sort of like they look at each of the next words in this probabilistic way of like what was the chance that ai was created this piece was the chance that ai created this piece and so a lot of them fail um that their accuracy when it comes to gpt3 created content is is low um and they have a higher rate of false positives uh, as well. Okay. So who is this tool for specifically? Yeah. It, um, so we're getting a ton of university professors signing up, but that, that's not who we built it for. Um, <laughs> but it, we built this for serious web publishers. So like people, you know, such as yourself, such as myself that are publishing a lot of content are, are not writing the content themselves and are scared that Google is going to, is able to detect AI content and is going to continue to work to, to suppress it, to defend their position as a, you know, as being a search engine for a useful web with, with good quality content being, being delivered to the person searching. So it's for any, any serious web publisher that wants to understand if they are, or they are not publishing AI generated content and exposing themselves to a future penalty risk. Do you think Google can detect AI? Yeah, I mean they're smarter than us, um, so they, I have no, I have no doubt that they can. Um, they've come out saying that they can. Um, they are probably struggling with some of the same challenges that would probably to a lesser extent that our model is struggling with in terms of the like, how do you, how do you punish every like? And I mean Google. I mean, Google has a history of doing this, but how do you how do you punish everyone when you that you think has been using AI if that's what you want to do, even though, like they say, you know, AI alone is not bad. Spam is bad, period. And so if somebody has used AI ethically and added value, is that necessarily bad? And I think that that question is is hard for them to answer. And then the other piece is. Uh, they likely don't have a tool that's 100% accurate because I, I don't, I mean, they're smarter, so maybe they're better than us, but it's not going to be 100%. And so how do you, how do you roll out an update that is 
inaccurate. Again, they've done it before. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of credit. Well, and what do you think this is kind of shifting gears, but to the point of updates? So I know a handful of people that lost 80% of their traffic in July 2022 with the update. They got most of their traffic back in September 2022. And they didn't really do much to the site. I heard that story a number of times. So what do you make of those huge swings where someone gets really punished in an algorithm update, typically a core algorithm update, but it could be any of the smaller updates too. And then it swings back. Seems like Google is correcting something, but what do you think? I mean, I think it's, I think Google doesn't know. I mean, I think there's a, there's a piece to this where just Google's, doesn't necessarily know what's going to ha- happen. The sa- like the same way that I can't answer how did our AI, like specifically why did our AI say that this was this content was, you know, I think, I think they roll things out with some level of accuracy and then they look at all the edge cases that screwed up and then try and fix it. And I think it's just over time, it's become this patchwork of, of different algorithms that are, are attempting to, address one thing unintended consequence and they try and address that unintended consequence. And, and so I think it's, um, it's frustrating. It's a frustrating world to live in for all of us. But um, yeah, I, I think, that, I think the honest answer is they're trying to do their best, but they don't, they don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen with each update. Yeah. I agree with that. Well, as we're um, wrapping up here, I'm curious as a thought experiment, how you see, AI playing out in the content world, uh, niche site owners and affiliate marketers with display ads and stuff like that. And, you know, I've thought about this because, you know, people are excited about chat GPT, which I haven't actually personally played with yet, but I'm thinking, you know, if, if there is great output and, you know, Google is on board and if it's solving the problem of the searcher, then they're okay with it. And the cost is potentially low for AI content and everyone starts publishing very good AI content that is accurate. Yeah, let's assume it's accurate. Let's assume it reads well. Let's assume that it is solving the problem of the searcher. Where does that lead? Like if we play that out, say two years or five years, what's the landscape of like content websites? Yeah, I, I have a couple of theories right now. Um, so I think the closest analogy around how, how AI was going to impact content is similar to like drivers or, or pilots. So although AI is the most advanced for planes, I think we're a long way away from there being a pilotless plane. I think we're a lot closer to a driverless taxi where the consequences of failure are not low, but lower than the consequences of a plane. I I think around content, you know, we've seen Google apply different rules to different, different, you know, your money, your life kind of content that Google has applied different rules to that sort of like an EEAT um, uh, now. So I think um, EEAT is going to be more important. I think um, certain sectors of the internet, certain topics in the internet are going to have 
AI detection applied more aggressively to it um, and by, by Google because the consequence of wrong information, which is the largest problem with AI-generated content right now, is higher. And so I think that's going to exist. If it's, if it's low consequence, accurate information, useful information, like 100 game ideas for kids, Great. Like what, like if, if that's the best article was a generated, who cares? Um, you know, as long as they're not saying go, you know, go play with matches, but, um, <laughs> uh, so I think that's going to be where I, I think that's going to be the, like the obvious short term, longer term, it, it becomes an interesting question. Like I've used, I've used chat GPT instead of Google for idea generation. Like if I wanted to come up with like, Hey, what is, uh, you know, 17% of searches and Google have never been entered into the search engine before. There's no, probably no piece of content that has been generated for that. If AI gets good enough that I can generate accurately generate that piece of content, then I do think there is a reasonable threat to Google and Google's face is going to face this on two sides from a potential decrease in quality of search results due to a massive amount of AI content and an increasing quality of an alternative with asking a, an AI tool like chat GPT, a question and getting a very high quality answer. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the piece. Like, I think there's an obvious piece on how it's going to play out with like the, your money, your life, um, world. I think the, the longer term pieces, it's a, it is an existential threat to, to Google. And I, I mean, Google right now has the largest, the largest natural language processing model, just not released to the, to the public. Got it. Yeah, it'll be, I mean, no one knows. So it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see how it plays out. And, you know, I think about the extra stuff that a, a person can add to it and make it more interesting or more personal. And I think, you know, that'll continue to be, you know, personalities. And I don't want to use like influencers and I'm using influencers in air quotes, but like people that uh, have an audience and they care about what the person says, like that sort of makes a difference. And, you know, you could label it as like building a brand and like actually like creating more of a business versus just like a website publishing content as quickly as you can from AI just to siphon off a little bit of uh, like ad revenue or something like that. So yeah, I fully agree. I think, I think video will continue to, to be, I think watching an expert community, like I think as, as like, you know, as you can trust content less that is produced by a true expert watching a video, seeing the person be the expert doing it. I mean, we'll, we'll see where, we'll see where AI takes the sort of the deep fake world. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the video side will continue to be a, an increasing source for that reason, because it's the, the fastest way to build rapport with somebody and with an audience and sort of get to the point of being like, yeah, I know, like trust this person. I want to hear what they have to say. So I'll link up to originality AI so people can uh, check out the detection tool and the plagiarism tool. John, where else can people find you? Yeah. Um, best place is, is my, my blog where I'm, I'm hit and miss in terms of being active on, but that's at, uh, that's at websiteincome.com. All right. Awesome. We'll uh, link up and I'll link up to your other services and whatnot and uh, website income as well. So thanks a lot. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thanks. Doug. Always good to chat with you. 
Thanks a lot to John for taking the time out to chat with me. The tool is very cool. I've done a couple demos. I think I did a live stream at this point, but I'm gonna do a shorter video and uh, kind of a proper demo maybe head to head with a couple of the different AI detection tools, which the quality varies widely. And sometimes it left me a little puzzled on, on what was really accurate. And I think that's something we're gonna have to figure out as we go. Now, side note, I have been playing more with chat GPT and I have been more and more impressed, which I'm, I'm happy about. And I mentioned this a couple of times, I'm pretty sure back in the day I said, ah, AI is not ready yet, but I've also been open to the idea. So two, three years ago, you know, not really what was advertised, but this new iteration does seem pretty cool. And I'm trying to figure out the right use cases for me. So one thing that I have been doing, and it wasn't perfect, but YouTube video headlines or headlines and titles in general. So I did ask uh, for my other podcast, Mile High Fi. I asked ChatGPT to come up with some different titles for a YouTube video based on a specific interview with a specific person. And I asked for 10 different ideas. It was mostly decent, maybe half of them were okay. One or two were pretty good. And what I did is I had this list of 10 and I sent it over to my podcasting partner to pick out the, the best title and get his feedback. I also inserted one more. So I didn't send him 10. I actually sent him 11. And I told him one of them is mine. And then the other 10 are from ChatGPT. And he, he ranked them, had a similar uh, kind of impression where maybe half of them were good, a couple of them were pretty decent. He did have a specific favorite and it was mine. It was the one that I wrote. Now, I think it's valuable as a brainstorming tool. And maybe, you know, I wrote mine after I read the ones that were there. I didn't lift anything directly, but it was a good brainstorming tool. And I can see, depending on the topic, really can be valuable to come up with a different sort of outlook, a different way to view the same content and then put a title on it. So as Ariel Phoenix has been telling me, you know, use this as a tool, use these AI capabilities as, you know, some piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle, which I, I always knew, but I just didn't know how to use it, especially in my workflow. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, going in with an open mind, trying to figure out how to use it. Currently, I'm testing, you know, directly with OpenAI chat GPT, because that's the only way to get to it. I'm not sure how much value is actually added by the front end tools. So this is one area where, you know, I've started to talk about some of the AI tools like Jasper. Um, I can't remember any others, but outranking.ai, IO, I don't know. I'm getting them confused now. But basically the point is, the front ends can be valuable, but I think they have to be very specific. And depending on what you're doing, you may be able to just use OpenAI and save a huge amount of money because when I looked at how much it costs to get a certain amount of content from say Jasper versus OpenAI, it's staggering. Like they're, I mean, obviously they're running a business. It's a VC funded, I think, um, entity. So Jasper has to make a lot of money, right? they charge a lot for it. Now there's convenience that you get from it. So it's not like there's no value added, but is that value really good for you? That said, 
you look at uh, like the bulk publishing framework that Ariel Phoenix put together and I'm an affiliate, I'll put a link for that, but that interfaces directly with OpenAI. So there's no overhead, like you pay for the spreadsheet that Ariel had uh, created in this Google Sheet has the API calls to OpenAI. So it is serving, that that spreadsheet is serving as the interface, as the front end, instead of a tool like Jasper where you have to pay a monthly fee. And then you have this big overhead, this big cost of using a SaaS tool where if you use the spreadsheet where you put in your API key directly for OpenAI, then you're paying you know a very small amount. I've played with OpenAI for you know many hours, you know thousands of words, and I think I've only used like five cents or ten cents or something like that, like a very very small amount of money based. And, and they give you like eighteen dollars of credit, which goes a really long way. Now I'm sure if you use some automated tool um, that was using the API calls, you potentially can gobble it up really fast. But I'm literally working with inside the tool. So it's pretty cool. And as I mentioned, you know, I have been impressed with ChatGPT and I'm glad that I'm actually testing it out, trying to figure out, you know, not trying to write like long form content, but I'm trying to write, um, I'm trying to use the tool for things that I'm actually doing. So I'm, I'm trying to help myself first and understand how I can use it. And then maybe that will give me ideas to, you know, share with you. Maybe there there's a great way to find keywords, for example, or a great way to do like competition analysis or something like that. Or maybe, you know, there's a multi-step process. I think this is where it gets interesting where maybe I can get keyword ideas from chat GPT, send it to another tool to do further analysis. That's just one example. Or maybe I want to do competition analysis. So maybe I get some sort of a, a data dump from a tool. Maybe it's from the SERPs or maybe it's a tool that pulls information from the SERPs and then I could feed it into ChatGPT to do analysis or other work on that. So I, th I think anything really interesting will be, you know, two or three layers bringing some ideas that we already know and just, you know, doing a better job, doing it in an automated fashion, making it easier somehow, make it faster, make it more interesting, but it remains to be seen. So I'll keep you posted. And I think that's it for today. So check out John's stuff. I'll link up to Originality AI, uh, Rocket Content, some of the other stuff. I can't remember all the things. He has his hands in a lot of different places. And a quick plug for uh, Motion Invest. That is a uh, marketplace for websites and online businesses. I think it's mostly websites though. And it sort of fits the area uh, underneath Empire Flippers. So Empire Flippers is a very mature business and they're selling, you know, very, you know, fairly expensive businesses. And there, there was this void as Empire Flippers moved up the market and were selling more expensive websites. There was this void where, you know, people had uh, sites that they wanted to sell under $10,000 or they wanted to purchase under $10,000. That's where Motion Invest fits in there. So certainly check that out as well. And I'll catch you in the next episode.